from Melbourne and Minneapolis. This is for Christ's sake. Thursday, June 19th. Jenks was awakened in the morning by the ring of the telephone. He rolled over and groped for the receiver. Hello? 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 Welcome to the show. My name is Hugh and I'm joined, as always, by my overseas bedfellow. Mm. Uh, what's your name, sir? My name is Hunter and, and today, as I am twice every week on the show, I'm drinking a uh, gin sour and snacking on, well, I'm supposed to be snacking on saltines, but we didn't have any saltines, so instead I got some Triscuits, which is a cracker. I don't know if you know what Triscuit is. And what's the thematic link between Triscuits and Odds On by Michael Crichton under the shoot name John Large? Um, Quick. uh, Okay, okay, here we go. The Triscuit, the... Name Triscuit comes from the fact that they were baked originally using electricity. Is that true? Yep. And this is an electrifying thriller. Hmm. Good one. But I'm more fascinated by the fact that the name Triscuit. Yeah, electri. Is is reference to the fact that it was baked using electricity. And then biscuit, right? So. Right. So it's like a weird portmanteau. Yeah. This is a Twitter thread that. Went around a while ago, so. I missed it because Triscuits aren't really a thing here. Mm. Triscuits are delicious. They're actually my favorite type of cracker. Describe them for me and the listener. They're very crunchy. They are, they have sort of like a crosshatch pattern on them. Mm -hmm. They're salty uh, and they're great with cheese. What's the shape? A square. Okay, great with cheese. How so? Mm. They just pair well with cheese. Like if you're eating cheese on the side and also eating triscuits, it goes well together. Or you put the cheese no, on no. the no. If you put cheese, you put cheese on the triscuit. Right. Okay. Obviously. Obviously. So it's quite a big biscuit cracker that you can affix cheese to it. It's not like super big. I mean, I don't know. It's about it's about cracker size. I was I was picturing like a really small thing that you could grab like a handful of and stuff into. No, your no, no. Nothing like that. Because Triscuit, the name Triscuit sounds like a small snackable thing that you can grab handfuls of to me. No, it's like, it's like a regular sized cracker. But again, I I really like them a lot. Um, There are, they have a lot of varieties, but uh, my favorite one is the, just the plain original ones. Um, Mm. Okay. So will this be the snack of choice for the remainder of odds on, or will you be returning to saltines? For future episodes. Well, pro- probably, probably Triscuits, because the reason that I got these is because uh, we ran out of saltines, and uh, I can't imagine ever going and consciously buying a box of saltines. Mm. But I can, and probably will, buy, go buy a box of Triscuits. So. 
you have brought with you on this journey through all things Crichton some gin, gin sour, was it? Mm-hmm. A gin sour and some triscuits, whereas I am continuing to drink my anonymous boxed white wine mm. and feasting on my delicious banana cream biscuits, which uh, I'm sure Miss Shaw would approve of. Mm. I'm going to have to try to get some uh, Tim Tams for next uh, season. Mm, I have a pack of Tim Tams in my house at this very moment. Hopefully we finish this uh, book before I run out of gin, because I don't want to have to buy a new bottle and then think of another gin cocktail. <laughs> That'd be really annoying. I guess I just buy, like, single-serving gins. Mmm. Mmm, mmm. All right. Mm. Okay. Now, but mm. we both had a had a had a sip or a bite. Mm-hmm. And so let's know, get on to the know, uh, before we before we proceed. Mm. As you know, I'm a big proponent of the creation of extrasensory memory. It's probably not the right terminology because <laughs> extrasensory means like beyond sensory, which is not not what I'm going for, but like. Multi-sensory memory, I'll say. Mm. Through the repetitious association between particular foodstuffs and a a cultural experience, you create this this link that when you think back on it is more pleasurable, I believe, than a mere memory of an event, Mm. right? If If I picture myself as a grandfather with grandchildren at my knee, Vera, Bob, and Drake. They're not the names that McCartney used, I've forgotten. But anyway. Um, Are you okay? <laughs> so I'm picturing myself as a grandfather, right? Got my slippers. Mm. My little grandkids are giving me the newspaper or something. And I'm reminiscing about the past. And I remember the novel Odds On, or more specifically, the patch of my life in which I recorded a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> about the works of uh, Michael Crichton. I don't know why this would be a separate experience from the present day from when you're remembering this, because we're going to be doing this for the rest of your life. So That's true. But I, maybe I'm remembering back to the start of the podcast that is still going. <laughs> okay. I mean, this guy wrote so many books. So I was like, remember, the, remember when this whole enterprise began with the novel Odds On, mm. right? Now think back to that. And, you know, that could be pleasant in and of itself, right? That was a nice time in my life. Despite the uh, horrors of the coronavirus, which ravaged the economy around the world and caused countless deaths, mm. well, not countless. I mean, there were there were good times. You know, I, I was uh, I was uh, liaising with a friend from overseas. We were recording this podcast about the works of Michael dr- Crichton. We were going through the works. <laughs> you, you were drinking heavily. Odds on, I haven't got there yet. So that you know that that you know itself could be pleasant as an old man looking back, right? Mm. I think there's something extra special about that memory if it's associated with a memory of a beverage and a taste that went along with that. Like, it, it kind of enriches the memory. It cements it in my mind in a way that I find pleasing. So, mm. and, and I was just thinking before, as I was opening my packet of banana cream briscuits, it gave me this warm glow of association with the novel Odds On and this whole experience. I, I highly recommend this course of action to our listeners, and they can remember the good times when they listen to the podcast for Christ's sake and munched along can, can eat hosts, and drink along with stuff. us. Yes. 
Mm. Ah. Delicious. Where was we? We're about to start talking about uh, whatever the chapter is. Thursday, whatever, whatever. Thursday, June 19th is the chapter we are up to. Thursday, long chapter. I think this is the longest chapter so far. Mm. Given the amount of chapters we have left... Wait, I'm going to finish my cracker before I say this. Given the uh, number of chapters we have left and compare that to the number of pages we have left, I think it might be a safe assumption this could be the longest chapter in the book entirely. Yes, I was surprised when I saw the page number after I'd read this chapter. And uh, there was a point at which I wondered if I'd accidentally skipped over a chapter break and I was <laughs> plowing my way through the book. Oh, yeah, that must mean that the, the longness of this chapter must mean it is an extremely important chapter, right? A lot of important developments of the plot. No two ways about it. This is the most important chapter in the book. But here, before we go and get into describing this chapter, first we have to do the very necessary business of describing the chapters before. What, what, where did we leave off with our intrepid heroes? Where did we leave off? Um, so that's the question. We had our uh, we had so we had Jenks with mm-hmm. Annette. No, we didn't. No, nope. no. Never mind. <laughs> nope, no, no. <clears throat> start again. Start we had again. Jinx. I'm sorry. Jinx. I'm sorry. We had a Jinx trying to steal away that, um, you know, big-breasted American uh, cowgirl, um, Jenny, from uh, the uh, con extraordinaire. Peter Gantz in the Peter floor. Peter Gantz. Gantz in the moonlight. Yeah, so our, our principal protagonists, the schemers involved in this mm. scheme... Were uh-huh. Jenks, Brian, and Miguel, right? And all of them, all of them have become attached to a lady. Yes. The very last thing in the last chapter was Jenks leaving a drunken Jenny uh, distraught that he he doesn't appear to be taking advantage of her. Mm. Which he so desperately wants. Indeed. Because. As we've said before, Michael Crichton is a man who uh, I would say does not understand how um, does not understand women. Period. Unlike Jenks, who, desire. who definitely understands women, as, as, as this chapter <laughs> yeah. will explain. <laughs> women, women, women as defined by the book Odds On. Certainly. To be fair, I understand women as defined by the book Odds On too. I have a very good grasp. Oh boy, Crichton's women here. I mean, I wish. <laughs> Does that mean that you're going to become a sex tourist in uh, Spain after this is all done? I wish I wish I was Gumby and I could just jump into this book. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Anyway. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so we got Jinx looking out with Jenny. We have Brian insinuating himself in the assistant manager of the Hotel Rena. Annette. This is Annette. Yes. And he feels a little guilty about this, but he's not going to let that stop him because this is a huge payday. And then uh, we, we the last chapter of the chapter before that featured Miguel hooking up with Cynthia, but that's not where we left him necessarily. We no. left him having realized that a con man that he had some contact with, whose name is Alan Brady, had entered the hotel. This figure is the same bumbling American, or the seemingly bumbling American, who had... Jinx tailed in Barcelona at the uh, closer to the beginning of the novel. 
Now he's arrived at the Hotel Rena for purposes unknown. I believe that is pretty much where we left off the last chapter. Yes. And um, <laughs> the, the banana lady had made her ingress into the hotel. She'll recur again. Along with her chauffeur, Jean-Paul. Who receives much more time than I was expecting in this chapter. <laughs> to that lonely. <laughs> All right. So um, where we start in this chapter is that Jinx is... Uh, <clears throat> Wakes up and then um, <laughs> decides to go on a little drive with his um, possible future conquest to Jenny. No, no, she she decides to go on a drive and she calls him to ask him to take her on a drive so she can get away from that idiot Peter. She's desirous of the state of being driven and um, Jake's wanting to get into her... Uh, get into her blouse and her large mounds is all too willing to provide this to her. Uh, so they go on a drive, which takes <laughs> five or six pages. <laughs> yep. Uh, of some little, little bit of soft core description, uh, some uh, cheesecake um, uh, description of her body. I think is the primary uh, motivating force by this little subchapter. Would you agree? Yeah. Um, pretty. I would say uh, not especially pleasant. Uh, a little strange. And I was kind of uh, baffled by what, what was going on with this a little bit. But yeah, they exchanged some banter. He's he's playing it cool as he had been uh, previously and uh, pretending he's not that interested in Jenny. And and that lack of interest is spurring her on. Mm. It's apparently making her into the bitch that he wants. Um, so that's, that's the Jinx and Jenny uh, storyline sorted out, I think. Yeah, the gist of the Jenks bit. Um, there's some absolutely ridiculous passages in it, but um, nothing especially worth sharing, I don't think. No, there's barely anything to that. Uh, then we transition to the uh, conclusion of the Annette and Brian uh, assignation that was started in the previous chapter. So they go for a walk from the hotel to this secluded little beach, which no one really knows about except for Annette and now Brian. And uh, this is where it gets, like, slightly existential. Mm. Maybe foreshadowing a, uh exciting portion of this chapter that we'll get to later. But as they're on this beach and Annette is taking off her clothes and getting into her beach wear, Brian has a vision of seeing himself at a distance mm. from a far shore, perhaps, standing there with this woman changing her clothes beside him. Mm. A surreal vision. And I uh, just wanted to plant that little nugget because this is the chapter in which we get <laughs> some very surreal visions. Yes. Um, and then, uh, so from this uh, beach point, uh, they decide to go into town uh, to Garona and um, catch a virus. Sorry. So Brian and Annette go to Garona and. They spend a pleasant day together and night. Mm. And is this the moment where Brian attempts to picture uh, Jane, the woman uh, whose uh, love he was making in the in the opening chapter? Frequently he thinks he tries to bring an image of Jane into his mind while he's with Annette, but he doesn't succeed. No. Contrary to what you might expect, given this book's general attitude towards sex, uh, Annette and him do not end up in the sack together. They do not. 
Check to the, the closing words of the chapter are her falling asleep in the car as he drives back to the hotel. And Brian coming to the rueful realization that he's formed an attachment to this woman that he should have mm. just been impartially using in order to help them with their heist. Mm. Do you think this attachment will come up in some meaningful world way during the heist? That it will present perhaps a wrinkle in this carefully plotted computer-assisted plan. Mm. Now, Hugh, uh, I'm going to take this moment to do a little bit of gloating because in the last chapter, I predicted that we would not get any more, or sorry, the last episode, I predicted that we would not get to the heist itself during this pair of episodes that we're recording. And I was right. <laughs> so, suck it. Yes, I was thinking about that prediction as well. I, I at least predicted that the next chapter would have nothing mm. to do with it. I predicted that neither of them. But I should say that these predictions carry almost no weight, given that the novel has already told us the day on which the heist was due to occur. <laughs> Chap and the chapters are divided by days of the week, effectively. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> there was no chance of getting to Saturday by the next two chapters. Mm. Well, because we're both morons, it's okay. Yes. Um, but I was right, and I'm going to take a little bit of gloating right now. Good job. Alright. <clears throat> that's that's me quoting. That's the noise of me quoting. This is the noise of me eating a banana cream biscuit. Mm, let's hear it. Yeah, that's right. It's good. Mm, mm. <laughs> we should do an ASMR cut after the show gets really popular of just all the <laughs> uh, eating noises. <laughs> Alright, but um, Hugh, to simply focus on the jinx and the uh, Brian sections of this chapter to elide so much great material, wouldn't you say? It elides the the greatest scene in the history of literature, perhaps. <laughs> but uh, we'll get to that now. Let's 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 continue going sequentially based on how um, it unfolds in the book. I think. What what was the next part after uh, the first Brian section? The Miguel portion of this chapter concerns the earlier sighting of Alan Brady, this loud con man who has already irritated Jenks in a previous chapter. Mm -hmm. and with whom Miguel shares some association. Mm. It's not quite clear exactly what their connection is, but he's recognised him, and I'm assuming that Alan Brady would recognise Miguel in turn, hence why he keeps hiding behind pot plants to survey him. And he watches... In, in newspapers. He watches Brady uh, inveigle himself among the guests of the hotel. He seems to be talking to everyone. Mm in a manner that is reminiscent of someone trying to carry out the same scheme that Miguel and uh, co are carrying out because mm -hmm. a big part of their plan was to find out who is holding anything of value in the room at the hotel. Yes. And who isn't, rather, so they know which rooms yes. to eliminate from their investigations, right? Yes. Now, we don't know specifically what uh, Brady is up to, but that raised alarm bells in my head. Did it for you too. I mean, there's also some, uh, there's obviously something suspicious about Brady's presence at the hotel, but I can't say that I I got the uh, parallels between him and their scheme. It seemed like pretty typical con man stuff to me. So could just be trying to find whichever mark will bite. Yeah. So uh, Miguel uh, then after you know ev evading Brady does a little bit of trickery to the hotel manager to. 
um, retrieve the room number that Brady is staying in, um, which is number 51. Yes. And then from that point, we go on to Jenks again. Yes, because Jenks has returned from his escapade with Jenny. Mm. And Miguel swiftly informs him that there is going to be trouble because this man is here. Yes, with Brady. Right. And, uh, you know, Jenks knew there was going to be trouble. He suspected there was going to be trouble based on his prior associations with this man. And sure enough, it has mm. come to fruition. They have both uh, wound up at the same hotel. Hmm. And um, Jenks uh, accosts Brady or sort of tries to... Not accost. Accost the wrong word. He... Uh, Sits next to him at a bar. That's the right word. Yeah. And tries to um, finagle some information out of him. Yeah. By pretending that he's a corporate uh, counter-espionage spy. Yep. A member of law enforcement. And he gains a little bit of interesting knowledge out of Brady um, by learning that he's planning on leaving the hotel on Saturday, which is the day of the heist. Uh, and that... Uh, and he confirms this little bit of information by, again, uh, misleading the people at the desk by suggesting that he, he wanted to switch to Brady's room because it's a better room. We should also say that when Jenks confessed to Brady that he misled him earlier on the flight mm. and that he was, in fact, uh, a member of a law enforcement agency, Brady proceeds to tell him that he is part of the CIA. Right. Although it is clear that it is made clear that Jenks does not believe him. Yes. And uh, this this little revelation or this um, a guise that Brady has put on uh, leads to a piece of dialogue that I would like to share with our loyal listeners. Mm. For crying out loud. This is this comes after Brady um, talks about the fact that he was posted to Shanghai a few years back. Which is this? Just, just, just a little bit of uh, a highlighting of uh, the uh, dialogue skills of uh, Mr. Michael Crichton, which is uh, <laughs> damn tooting. Lots of snatch too, baby. He slammed Jinx's back and roared. <laughs> so good stuff. Just master, master craftsman at the top of his game. I think a, a beautiful Crichtonian exchange. Yes. So he learns that, uh, and then Jinx retreats to his room. He hears a little bit from Brian uh, that the thing with the dead is going well. And then um, uh, Miguel reports to Jinx and says that uh, he searched Brady's room and it was clean. Uh, and then finally, we get the re uh, revelation that uh, their scheme is running a little bit behind schedule because they have not eliminated quite as many rooms uh, to lead uh, to as the computer was just the optimum chances of success. Um, because uh, they've just failed to hit a certain percentage. And that's where you leave Jinx in this chapter. Yeah, so we have one more storyline to get to. Mm, we actually have two more storylines to get to. Is it two more? Yeah, but let's save the big, the, the thing that dominates the majority of this chapter. Save the best for last. Yeah, exactly. Um, because we have a little scene with Ginny and um, John Paul, or sorry, <laughs> John... Peter, Paul, and what's the third one? Fourth one? John, Peter, Paul. Ringo. Ringo, thank you. Um, now we got a little scene with Peter Ganson and Jenny where they go water skiing. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. 
um, which isn't really much, but um, basically uh, Ginny tries to emasculate uh, dear Mr. Peter. Tries and pretty much succeeds. Mm. Uh, it seems our Peter Gansett's a little bit of a cuck to use to common day parlance. Would you agree with me there? <laughs> Certainly in the eyes of Jenny, who desires a strong man. So we get that little scene with Peter, and then the book uh, makes an abrupt transition to the, uh, well, I'll, I'll say the frankly pornographic, and I'll leave it to you to describe further. This is the most explicit the novel has been thus far mm. in terms of the carnal realm. Yes. Uh, this is when it goes from softcore to hardcore, as it were. So we, we return to the goings-on surrounding the mysterious Miss Shaw, mm. who uh, has brought with her her loyal chauffeur, Jean-Paul, mm. as well as like a mound of bananas. She entrusts Jean-Paul with a mysterious parcel, something wrapped in newspaper, which we could, which which we using context clues based on the previous um, chapters, we could assume is her stash of marijuana. Yes, it's it's safe to assume it's some sort of illicit substance that he mm. is uh, going to be delivering, parceling out. So Jean Paul heads on his way with the parcel. He goes to a hotel room door, knocks on it, and the door opens. And who's on the other side? Why, Miss Cynthia. The very same Cynthia that Miguel and several others have already enjoyed. So, uh, what happens with John Paul and his, his mysterious package? Uh, so, he delivers it to Cynthia. It transpires that it is indeed a, uh, a, a stock of weed, or as this book terms it, kef, uh-huh. which was not terminology I was familiar with. But anyway, that's what we will stick with. Connecting the dots, uh, I made the assumption that Cynthia was the niece that Miss Shaw had referred to in a previous chapter, that she knew that Jean-Paul would enjoy meeting. Mm -hmm. And indeed, Cynthia refers to uh, Miss Shaw as Aunt Elizabeth, even though they're not actually related. Uh, She invites Jean-Paul in to enjoy the hash with her Mm. and uh he proceeds to construct four joints for them to enjoy together Mm -hmm. and enjoy it they do they enjoy it in both their brains and their bodies yep so not only do they get high together Mm, they also do the beast with two backs indeed you know he well we could we could go into detail about this uh love scene um, but oh, we can I, read I, I it in its entirety. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I feel like nothing can give it justice except for Crichton's own technical brilliance. For Crichton out loud. So uh, a side effect of this particular strain of marijuana seems to be that the people uh, doing it uh, experience um, bizarre hallucinations, which is not a typical uh, side effect of smoking weed, or at least from my own experiences as a. Um, Inveterate uh, weed junkie. Mm-hmm. Um, you've never you've never touched the uh, the sticky icky stuff. If, I, if my understanding is correct, that is indeed correct. I've never had a single drug experience, so I'm relying on your authority to navigate us through this particular rendition. Well, Hugh, I can't imagine that Michael Crichton would be someone who did not smoke pot because he seems to have not denied himself the pleasure of the body 
uh, in any other other form. You know, some of the hallucinations that are described here may resemble the effects of cannabis, but um, hallucinations, not something that commonly happens, I'd say, or very much at all. So, all right, here we go. Are you ready? I'm ready. He stood on top of her and felt her heart thump against his chest. He let himself into her with a, with soft gentleness, savoring each exquisite instant of penetration. Her legs were wide for him, free and open. He pressed himself home to the hilt and felt her thrust it up her pelvis to meet him. That's good, she said, kissing him and locking her arms around his neck. Below, she felt him him in her, plunging and withdrawing. Slower, darling, she whispered. Her voice dragged. It took days to finish the sentence. Keep it beautifully slow, like a long, slow pendulum. Very long, swinging, swinging. John Paul heard her as if from a distance. She peeped from the end of a dark tunnel, but some corner of his mind told him that she was high. Her voice told it all, even from a distance. He slowed his stroke and felt her sex ripple and clutch at him. She had muscles there. She knew how to use them. It was delicious, tightening, sensual feeling. A bell constrictor, like squeezing a rubber tennis ball, like flexing a bicep. Her legs came around his, and she pressed her heels inside his knees, getting better leverage for her hips, which moved in slow, sure time with them. Her breasts strained against his chest. Her legs tensed against his. Oh, it's going to be so good, so good. Yes, that's it. Very slowly. Oh, yes, that's it. In himself, he felt the coiling, the snake that was preparing to strike. The spring was growing tense until it would burst the mechanism. That's it. Lovely. It's lovely. Yes. So slowly. So slow. Endless. Continuing. And then she was pressing him herself to him tightly, straining as he pierced her. And soon Jean-Paul felt himself carried on a wave. And then it was a tram railway up a mountainside. And then a rocket up and up. And she screamed slightly and pressed forward like a thirsty mouth to water. A sucking clam. Time passed. That's it. So what, what's happened so far, if you feel lost, yeah. is that Jean-Paul has delivered some weed to Cynthia. They've smoked some joints and they've had sex, mm. right? That's what's happened so far. Mm-hmm. And then what is to happen next but Cynthia's like, okay, now we've had sex slowly. Now let's have sex quickly. <laughs> so mm. they fuck again. Mm. Immediately after the passage that you have uh, extracted. Now, I didn't do quite much of this, but this returns to the clam imagery <laughs> for whatever reason. It was like a clam shell which had been pried open for a brief glimpse before clamping down. Clam clamping. Clamped down on a clam. Clammy hands and feet. It's like, is he going for like this Nabokov style? <laughs> I'm reducing the words until they're basically nonsense. Yeah. It sounds like a, a, a parody of the opening of Lolita, but anyway. Mm. I did like this bit too. Uh, she was stopped in front of him now, running her hands up her sides, finally reaching her breasts, which she held out like fruit for sale. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the, ge- uh, the genius at work. She stood before him, guiding his hands to her buttons and snaps. The slacks burst open, slowly like a flower opening, and he pulled them down her legs. Her groin was right before his eyes, and he could sense <laughs> the heat and desire radiating from it. Uh, 
Just the cho- the choice of word is peculiar. Like groin is is like the least sexy way you could describe uh, that particular mm-hmm. area of the female anatomy. I think it kind of saps any sensuality or eroticism from this otherwise highly erotic scene. I must say, groin like it does <laughs> it does mean the same thing. It's a generic term for for someone's genitals. It's not uh, male or female, right? Yes. But it's sort of casually clinical, and I guess that's to be expected from the medical student, Michael Crichton. Mm. But, like, it's so, like, unsexy that even when sports people announce to the press that they have pulled a groin, no one bothers to titter. Yeah. He He later uses loins, which I guess has, like, an archaic kind of eroticism to it, but not much. Right, there's one little bit we have to tackle before we uh, exit the chapter. Oh, I just want to say, uh, this sex scene is ridiculous, and it goes on for, like, five or six pages. <laughs> it is by far the longest scene of this chapter, and seems to have no bearing on the plot or anything consequential whatsoever. <laughs> so, uh, we got one little bit of this chapter, which is that uh, Miss Shaw... Um, we, we see a brief scene of her enticing a... Uh, potential buyer to purchase some marijuana from her stash. Um, and that's that's all that uh, that we wrote for this week, I think. Uh, do you have anything else you want to mention about the chapter? No, not a lot happens. Not a lot happens to progress the plot at all. Yet, as we've already alluded to at the start of this uh, episode, it is possibly the longest chapter in the entire novel. Yes, the longest chapter and... The one that seems to have the little, the smallest amount of plot momentum. You could remove this chapter. It wouldn't make any difference to the progression of the story, pretty much. Yes. Uh, it seems to have been put in just to um, fill out some pages, pretty much, and add a, add a sex scene. Sex it up a little bit. Yeah, not only is the chapter as a whole, like, inconsequential, but the most inconsequential part of the chapter is given the most space. <laughs> yes. Although, I mean, we should both be glad for that. Very strange, with these two extremely tertiary characters. It's weird that so far the most detailed and extensive and explicit sex scene does not involve any of the main characters. Mm. Yeah, it is odd. Unless there's another in store for us at the end of this book, but we'll see. Well, we we shall see. Um, But I believe uh, that is all we have written for this particular episode of uh, For Christ's Sake. Yep. Uh, forgive us for going a little bit longer on this one, but it required our due attention, I think. Yes. Um, well, I, well, let's let's hit the sign-off music. I've been Hunter, and you've been Hugh, and this has been For Christ's Sake. Cheerio. Good night, and good luck. I hope you have a great time. Oh.